So I'm going to start this morning by talking about something called the dark night of the soul. Have you guys ever heard of this? The dark night of the soul? It's a concept that was derived from a 16th century poem called Dark Night of Soul, written by St. John of the Cross. Now in modern times, the term the dark night of the soul has come to describe a period of great spiritual crisis that befalls a person who is on their journey toward union with God. Having engaged with many suffering saints during my own time as a believer, I can tell you that there really is something to this concept of the dark night of a soul. It's really an observable phenomenon that can in an instant come upon the lives of all who would call upon the name of Jesus. Oftentimes, the dark night of the soul comes at a period of great turmoil and suffering. But at other times, it comes when, seems, when things seem to be going just fine. And then suddenly, in an instant, those who were once at peace find themselves, like the afflicted, suffering as a result of feeling separated or distant from their creator. Or even worse, perhaps feeling punished. Indeed, Christians of all stripes report periods of great difficulty that have caused them to come so close to despairing. I think that this is because when suffering comes, we often feel like we have tragically missed something. You know, that, that, that we've maybe made a misstep somewhere along the way. We ask, why is this suffering happening? And lots of things can make us feel this way. The loss of a job that you once loved. The slipping away of future dreams. The loss of a loved one. Unexplained sadness and depression. Times come when when people who love Jesus find themselves feeling hopeless, overcome by the pain of loss, by guilt, or by shame, or under the weight of seemingly endless anxiety. And the presence of God, the presence of peace, is gone, nowhere to be found. It's at times like these that Christians so often begin to question our own experience of salvation. Am I truly saved? Our own understanding of the truth. We can begin to question God's goodness. We wrestle endlessly with our emotions, our feelings, our thoughts. Our hopelessness and uncertainty become a cancer to all of life. And what's worse, we can, we can even begin to feel more guilty when we find ourselves questioning God or doubting his goodness or his power to control our turmoil. Whether or not he has a plan for us, we do not even know. And so we pray for a miracle, and in the midst of hopelessness, that miracle may not come. And it's often at this point that the, that the enemy seeks to apply even more pressure upon us, and, and we often feel so, so lost that, that we can be drawn away from our God and made to fill that emptiness with the pleasures of this world. 
We often attempt to forget our sorrows and distract ourselves with any number of sinful idols. As one magisterial reformer put it, our hearts are idol factories. And so when the darkness comes, we stop checking those hearts. We stop listening for God's voice at all. We stop reading his word. And the darkness creeps in day by day and overtakes us and we are lost. Or, by the infinite grace of God, we persevere in spite of our weakness and we make it out alive with our faith intact. Not because every cloud has cleared or because our suffering has necessarily ended. No, we persevere because at some point we find ourselves believing once again in God's promise to keep us today, tomorrow, and forever with all of our scars and all of our bruises and all of our baggage. Today I would like for us to meditate upon the words of a Christian who knew affliction in a way that many of us may never experience. And I'm referring to Paul, the great missionary to the nations, whose own story is recorded in the book of Acts, and Paul himself authored a third of our New Testament. So this morning we're going to be considering Paul's writing in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. In 2 Corinthians, Paul writes a letter. It's a letter of reconciliation to the church at Corinth, reflecting on suffering, charity, forgiveness. And he uses this letter to mount a defense against false teachers, and particularly what it seems that these false teachers were calling into question was Paul's authenticity as a true apostle of Christ specifically because he was undergoing so much suffering. And, and they, were, they were probably asking, why would God allow this kind of affliction to befall Paul if he's truly a servant of God? Why is there so much suffering? And when we see believers under suffering like this, we too are likely to ask, why would God allow this? And we ask, how is someone so crippled by grief or suffering supposed to move forward in this Christian life? Well, all of those questions are questions that I hope the Scripture answer this morning as we feed upon the living Word of God together. It's my conviction that our text this morning is is telling us that in suffering, we glorify God as we comfort others with God's own comfort. So in our suffering, let me say that again, in our suffering, we glorify God as we comfort one another with God's own comfort. I'm gonna break this down into three points. The God of all comfort, the God who is in control, and pray to this God. So if you have your Bible, if you'd please turn to 2 Corinthians chapter one. We're gonna pick things up In verse 3. 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. Okay, let's stop there for right now. So, Paul opens this letter with a benediction to the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, thus giving God praise, and he blesses God for who he is. And now, uh, and, and he blesses him for how he has chosen to reveal himself through Christ. Then we see God is then called the Father of mercies and comfort. Now we should consider the mercy of God in a minute, but, but I want us to see right here now that the source of all comfort is God himself. And more specifically, I want us to see how God's comfort is displayed. It is apparent in Paul's letter that he is referring to the comfort that God offers to his special possession. That is the church of believers. And Paul says that God is comforting the church so that we are able to comfort those who are in any affliction, that are in our midst. We, we see that in verse 4. He says that we do so by sharing the very comfort that God has given to us. One of the things that sets the Christian church apart from the world that we inhabit is our willingness, even desire, to love and care for those in our midst who are in need. Our, our sacrificial care for the temporal and the, and the practical needs of those that God has made our church community is a beautiful display of the biblical idea of charity. When we see someone in our midst who has a need, the scripture calls us to offer aid and support in their time of trial and destitution and whatever need they may have. In Edgewood Bible Church, I praise God because my family and I have experienced this kind of comfort and love firsthand because of your faithfulness to this command. Uh, not long after we had arrived in Iraq, on an evening when my wife discovered that her grandfather had passed away, we providentially received an email from your pastor and a video from the VBS here. And Pastor Jeff shared just how abundantly this church had been moved to support our family and the work that we are doing in Erbil. In that moment where our sadness caused our minds and hearts desire to be off the field, EBC, you encouraged and you reminded us that we were right where we needed to be, that God was with us, and that his saints here in Edgewood were behind us supporting us, and praying for us. So brothers and sisters, thank you. There's something else in this section 
that I want us to see, though, when it comes to the comfort that the church can offer. Paul is not saying that the church will fix all of the problems of the world. No, only the king of the universe, universe can do that. We cannot fix all of the problems around us by our own strength or resources. There are many of us who have found this out the hard way. Yet God has not called us to save the world. He sent his son to do this. No, our call is much more localized. We are called to love one another here in this local church. And this is why it is important to be a part of a local church, to be sharing your life with other believers. You know, the New, the New Testament is, command, is full of commands that we are supposed to, of things that we are supposed to do for one another. Uh, oftentimes this gets called the one another's of the scriptures. We are called to, to care for one another, to honor one another, to teach one another, to serve one another, to correct one another, to love one another. Now it's impossible to fulfill these biblical commands if we believe that being part of a church isn't necessary in the Christian life. This is also why membership is so important. The one another commands to love as Christ has loved us is first and foremost directed at Christians concerning the brothers and sisters in their church. And friends, let me just add, you may be in a season now where it isn't that clear to you that you need the help of other believers. In fact, it's, it's actually part of our sinful desire to embrace the idea that asking for help is bad or perhaps shameful. But how can we as a community fulfill these commands to comfort one another if we ourselves are afraid to share our own needs? As Christians who have faith in God, in Christ Jesus, and who have been given the Spirit of God, we understand that it is now our calling to war against those sinful hesitations and to share our struggles and suffering with our brothers and sisters and that those brothers and sisters are then called to care for us, to care for our physical, financial, and emotional needs to strengthen us in our struggle against sin, to, to comfort us with the beautiful words of the gospel. And this is the type of comfort that we are seeking to share with the people of Iraq. Our goal at Erbil Baptist Church is to display this comfort to others in a place where so many of us are separated from our family and friends, uh, we have discovered anew that uh, what, it, what it means for the community of, of believers to share in communion in something that's eternal that goes beyond flesh and blood family. Now there is a popular missiology today that teaches missionaries to, to approach international evangelism without the help of a local church. Now, understandably, there are missionaries who work in places where there is no church. But I am amazed at the number of missionaries I meet in Erbil who say that they have no time or desire to be a part of a local church. Their work is too important. 
Their mission agencies required them to be a part of a, of a local church when they were here in the States. But now that they are abroad, there is no expectation that they, would, uh, that they would seek out to join with a local church. And often, you know, the care of, for the souls of missionaries is, is relegated outside of the church. And in this setting, parachurch teams, uh, bosses and directors of programs, seek to care for one another spiritually. But in seclusion, uh, in this seclusion of parachurch ministry serving to try to fulfill the needs of the church, the gospel display of a local church is lost. Now, it, it would be a healthy exercise, I think, for all churches to ask their supported workers, is there a local church in your city or your village? And if so, are you a member of it? You know, that the mission field doesn't just need more workers. We need more church members who are committed to comforting brothers and sisters with the healing balm of the gospel. Because in the community of God, we find the comfort of God. Now, this comfort doesn't mean that we won't continue to face suffering as a community or as individuals. And should we, as God's people, expect to be free from suffering? Is that something the scriptures tell us, is granted to us when we become a follower of Jesus? Well, Paul makes clear in this passage that suffering, like comfort, is a necessary part of the Christian life. And here, let me just make uh, one quick aside to say that anyone who teaches that being a Christian will ensure you a pain-free life or less suffering is a false teacher. Uh, He or, or she is an antichrist, according to the Bible. And Paul makes this point clear here in verse 6, where he tells the church at Corinth that when, not if, when their suffering comes, they will have to patiently endure it. Paul uses his own experience as an example and provides a very important insight for us in the face of such suffering. And we see that in verses 8 to 10. Let's read on, starting in verse 8. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength, and we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril and will deliver. He delivered us from such a deadly peril and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. So when he faced persecution for the Christian faith, and he faced a lot of it. Paul knew that he was suffering for the greatest cause, the cause of seeing the gospel go forth, of seeing churches strengthened in their understanding of the truth, being built up in holiness while resting in the finished work of Christ, resting in God's mercy. In this passage, though, Paul emphasizes how he trusted in God's sovereign and goodwill at work 
in the midst of his affliction. It seems most likely here that that Paul in these verses is referring to the Jewish people's opposition to the gospel that he had experienced in Ephesus. You can read about that in 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, He hones in on on in verse 32 of chapter 15. What what we do know for certain though is, is that Paul is describing a moment when he felt overcome by struggles. Paul states that he despaired of life itself. That, that he and his travel companions were certain that, that they were going to die. Paul is describing a personal moment of great despair, of great pain. It was truly a dark night of the soul for Paul. And I think there's something important to note here too though. Look at Paul's response to this affliction. See, see how despite having real enemies before him, Paul was able to see a greater divine plan at work. Look at the, the second half of verse 9 again. He says, but that, meaning the affliction, the affliction was, was to make us rely not only, not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Paul here is, is presenting a radical idea that God would allow certain struggles to come into our lives so that we might be drawn closer to him. And, and ultimately, as Paul references here, that we might fix our hope on the resurrection. And as a result, we are told that Paul has every hope and belief that God will continue to deliver him Even death itself, Paul says, is is not the end because Jesus is coming back and we will be made new in the resurrection even as we are currently being made new. Paul looked to that day with eager expectation and so should we. Now imagine if you will that all of this suffering in our lives and around us, all the brokenness, though not caused by God, is being used by God for our good and for his glory. Like a mosaic of of broken pieces of glass or stone, God places the brokenness of our lives, the tragedies that are upon us, and the darkest nights that we encounter into a single frame. And he makes a more beautiful story than we can imagine. Now, when I look at the world today, when I consider the evil and death at work, I admit that I don't know why suffering is allowed to go on as it is. But I do know that God is in control. And I do know that I am closer to God because of my suffering. And I know that on the day of the resurrection, when I finally do get to see the grand design of God's work, on that day, I will say with all creation, it is perfect, Lord. So what do we make of all this? Well, Christian, I I cannot pretend to know the purpose behind every pain that you have felt, every sorrow, every affliction, abuse that you have endured, every hopeless situation. But I do know that your suffering is not meaningless. If Paul's words here 
in 2 Corinthians are true, and I'm betting everything that they are, well, then we have to view our suffering through a lens that is eternal. We have to look to the resurrection as our greatest hope. This resurrection hope is the crown jewel of the gospel. And we must honor and revere this treasure for what it is. Good news. The gospel of hope. Oftentimes people, oftentimes people will, will treat the gospel as if it is uh, a matter of first things or the first steps in the Christian life. And they fail to see the ongoing perpetual hope that the gospel brings to us in every trial. Without an understanding of God's love and mercy informing our everyday life, we cannot easily find ways to ourselves forgive others as we ought without regular reflection upon the suffering that we have been spared through Christ's atoning work on the cross. We cannot rightly think about how we should love one another sacrificially. Without an awareness of Christ's affliction, we cannot rightly measure our own affliction. And without the power of the resurrection beating in our hearts, we cannot overcome our greatest griefs and sorrows with hope. So Edgewood Bible Church, how is the gospel informing your days here on earth? Are you preaching the truth to yourself daily? Are you rightly seeing yourself and your sin? Are you facing your suffering today with an eye towards eternal realities and focus? When mishaps and accidents frustrate your plans, do you remember the sufferings of Christ for you? Do you remember that nothing can frustrate God's plans for you? When you have difficult struggles with your spouse or your children, do you remember God's wrath against you that has been satisfied by Jesus? Do you remember his eternal commitment that he has made to you? Do you remember God's patience with you while you were still dead in your sin? When you see your neighbors rejecting the truth, does your heart burn for them? Do you pray for your neighbors, for their salvation? When you struggle making it through your work week, do you pause and recognize the breath in your body? Do you give thanks to the creator for your life? When you feel the despair of brokenness in your family, or with friends, do you remember that this suffering, this brokenness, it's actually meant to build you up, not break you? Do you remind yourself that even this suffering is conforming you into the image of Christ? The gospel is the lens which we must view 
all of life through. We cannot rightly live as Christ's followers without the gospel at the center of who we are. Now maybe you're here this morning and you have heard the message of the cross before. Or, 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 but, but you feel like you've abandoned God in the past. You, you, you fear that perhaps God has done the same, that he's abandoned you and that now you are that abandoned. Friend, please remember Paul's description of God in this passage. He called him the God of mercy. Yeah, the gospel is for you too. Perhaps you're here and you don't know where you stand, but you do know that you yourself are not a follower of Jesus. Perhaps life is is going pretty well at the moment and you feel like you have been basically a good person and you think that that should be enough to get you into heaven when you die. And the truth is that you have misjudged God. God is not like us. God is the holy completely set apart and perfect creator of the universe. He created a a very good world and made humanity in his own image to be like him, to live like him, and to trust him. But our first parents chose to go their own way. And as a result, every generation of humanity has been afflicted by the curse of sin and death. Suffering entered the world not through God, but through us. And it has spread throughout all of God's good creation. The scriptures say that you and I were born in sin, in need of peace and restoration with our Creator. But here's the thing that we need to understand the goodness needed for this restoration. It's too much for you, and it's too much for me. It's more than we can bear. Because our sin, the terrible mistakes that we have made, the suffering we ourselves have caused, we cannot hope to survive on the day when we meet the creator of the universe face to face. We are his enemies. But God does not leave us without hope. There can be an end to this suffering. Two millennia ago, God sent his son, Jesus, to the earth. And Jesus lived that life that we need, that's without sin. Through his life, Jesus accomplished what our first parents could not, perfection. And Jesus was executed by the leaders of men in Jerusalem completing a divinely ordered sacrifice wherein a pathway was opened for anyone who would call upon his name, believing in this message that they would be saved. And now we are called to respond to this message, to accept that Jesus died for sinners, that his death, that his blood is capable of covering over your sins. And mine, restoring us to our Creator. We don't have to live as God's enemies anymore. And this is the good news of Jesus.
Friend, the sufferings of this life are real. They are inescapable. And it seems never ending. But the sufferings of this world are nothing compared to what lies in store for the enemies of God, for those who reject Christ. This is the gospel message that the scriptures proclaim and that all true Christians hold to as our only hope in life and death. That we are not our own, but belong completely in body and spirit to the one and only God who made us, who has forgiven us, and who has himself paved the way for peace with us. But following Jesus is not a decision to be taken lightly, but it is the right decision to make. If you have questions about this or would like to talk more about what it would look like to follow Jesus with all of your life, then then please uh, find me after the conclusion of the service today or or talk to one of the elders here uh, or one of the members about what it would look like for you to find peace with God and follow Jesus. But please, if you're here today and you don't know yourself to be a Christian, Take time right now to consider what God is asking and choose today to follow him. Friend, you you, you have to give him an answer. Silence is taken as a rejection of the Lord of life. So choose today. Edgewood Bible Church. Let us now conclude our time by reading verse 11 of this passage where Paul writes, You also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on, your, on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. Here in the midst of of Paul's reflection on God's sovereignty and affliction, we find this simple concluding note to the passage. Don't forget to pray. And it's a strange thing that an all-powerful, all-knowing, sovereign God would ask us to pray for the good things that he desires to do for us. And yet that is exactly what this passage says. His sovereignty is is working in tandem with our freedom as individuals so we are responsible to pray to God knowing that he will do what is right. And he desires to to hear and answer those prayers. And here I just want to add a comment that that I don't want anyone to to leave here thinking that it's wrong to pray for a miracle or healing when when we are crushed by terrible suffering or, or something like that. No, to the contrary, the scripture tells us that we should pray for such a thing. And they tell us that God has done many miraculous things in the past. So we should pray fervently for such things. But more importantly, we should pray with the Apostle John. Come Lord Jesus. For we know that our greatest hope awaits on the great day of the Lord when every knee will bow, every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord of the cosmos. 
And on that day, all suffering will cease. And while we wait, Paul says that effective prayer will lead many to give thanks to this God. And then many more will have their eyes opened to the power of God for salvation. In other words, God will be glorified by the way that we pray for one another and give thanks for his faithfulness. Prayer is the way that we reveal our dependence upon God. Prayer is the way that we make petition for one another. And prayer is the way that we ourselves engage with our God and creator. This creator who calls us friends. Who calls us his children. So brothers and sisters, I encourage you with Paul to pray without ceasing and to trust the Lord no matter what comes. He loves you and he has met your greatest needs at the cross already. There is a day when our suffering will come to a close and we will no longer be forced to merely survive these dark nights of the soul. The next time that you feel the shadows of death surrounding you, when you're walking through that valley, the next time your soul enters into the dark night, be it today or tomorrow or a hundred tomorrows from now, remember that God is there in the midst of the silence, in the midst of the pain, drawing you closer loving you and loving all of his children in this way to the ends of the earth. Friends, would you pray with me? Our Father, we thank you that you are the God of all comfort who has given us every hope in Christ. Lord, we, we recognize that these momentary afflictions that we suffer in this life cannot be compared to what awaits us on that great day when Christ returns. Lord, we pray that when our suffering comes that you would cause us to lift our eyes off of the troubles of this world and to Christ. Lord, we pray that you would help us to in the midst of every trial and affliction pray your will be done and that you would make us look more like Christ. Lord, on him our hope is set. On him, Lord, our, our, our eternal life rests. And so we say, come Lord Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen.